Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover, and welcome to Season 3. Hey, we study Bible prophecy here from a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial point of view, and we're always rapture ready. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. This is your host, Joel Dover, and welcome to Season 3. Hey, we study Bible prophecy here from a dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennial point of view, and we're always rapture ready. Grab your copy of God's Word and let's jump in together to see what the Lord has for us here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Hello friends, welcome back to the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. We're excited to be jumping into Revelation in chapter 11 today. So if you want to grab your copy of God's Word, this would be a great time to go ahead and turn there as we're preparing to continue our journey through the book of Revelation. Now, we have been learning about the trumpet judgments, and right in the midst of that, between the sixth and seventh judgment, we've seen the typical interlude that we saw also in the sealed judgments, and we'll also see it in the vile judgments. There's a, there's a pattern in these judgments that we pointed out in previous studies. The pattern is six, followed by a uh, parenthetical interlude, and then the seventh judgment. So we're in the, the middle of the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment, and some interesting things have taken place. We found out in chapter 10 that there's actually a third cycle of judgments that the Bible calls the thunder judgments. And these things, chapter 10, verse 4, have been sealed up. So John heard the thunders, he heard the utterings, he knows what the judgments are, but John has been instructed to seal that up. The Lord God did not want to reveal the contents of those thunder judgments in the book of Revelation. Later in the chapter, John is presented with a little book. I assume that the contents of that little book contain the thunder judgments, and he's instructed to eat it, to take it in, to internalize it, and it turns his stomach bitter. And then the Lord says, you're to go out and preach the gospel. You're to go prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And so John's message, ironically, beautifully, is not just for the church, not just for a specific nation, not just for Israel, not just for uh, the empire, but it's global. John's message was for the entire world, just as the gospel of Jesus Christ is indeed for the entire world. As we pick up in chapter 11 today, we're going to see that during the break between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, that the Lord sends forth witnesses who preach the gospel. So it's interesting that John has been instructed to go out and prophesy again about many uh, nations, peoples, tongues, and kings. Uh, and we believe that's connected to the gospel. And now we see the Lord giving two witnesses to do just that, to preach the gospel for the second half of the tribulation. Let's jump into chapter 11 and let's see what we can uh, discover about what takes place following the revelation of the trumpet judgments to John, which have been sealed from us for a time. Chapter 11, verse 1, John says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. All right, why don't we pause there? We'll work through verses 1 and 2. John is given a measuring rod here, something like the yardstick of the ancient world. He's instructed to rise and to measure the temple of the Lord and the altar and those who worship there. And there's some implications here. The implication is that there will be another earthly tabernacle. In fact, this is just evident in Scripture. When we think about the abomination of desolation, which is the uh, event where Antichrist sits on the, the throne of God and declares himself to be God Almighty, taking place at the midpoint of the tribulation, we know he can't sit on an altar that doesn't exist, a throne that doesn't exist, walk into a temple that doesn't exist. So 
Again, we see in the scripture, as we do in other places, the implication that as we come into the tribulation period, that there will be a rebuilt temple of the Lord, perhaps even constructed early in the uh, in the tribulation period, perhaps in those first uh, three and a half years. We don't know. John is instructed specifically here to measure the temple of the Lord, the altar, and those who worship here. So there's a designation made about worship, true worshipers of the Lord. However, he's not to measure the outer court, which has been given to the Gentiles to trample underfoot for 42 months. And of course, if you do the math on that, that's exactly 3.5 years, or the length of time from from the abomination of desolation until uh, the coming again, the second coming of the Lord. So the Bible is going to really talk about that three and a half year period in a couple of different ways in this chapter here. The Gentiles are treading the holy city underfoot, that is Jerusalem, for 42 months. So a couple of implications. Again, there'll be an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple, if you will. Um, we, we know that it's earthly because the Gentiles will never trample the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. So uh, we know that um, this has to be on the earth. We also have a reference here to the holy city, which is Jerusalem, of course, and in texts like Nehemiah chapter 11, Isaiah 52, Daniel 9, Matthew chapter 4, all of these texts refer to Jerusalem as the holy city. So there's no doubt about the specific location of the temple. And so again, there will be, according to my understanding of the word of God, a future rebuilt temple in the city of Jerusalem. And it's the one that will be rebuilt, the final temple that will be rebuilt and desecrated by the Antichrist, uh, the, uh, the place where the abomination of desolation will take place. John is instructed here to measure the temple and those who worship there, but he makes a distinction. And I think that he's making a distinction here, friends, between true worshipers of Almighty God and false worshipers of the Antichrist. The true worshipers, of course, would occupy the temple prior to the abomination of desolation. The false worshipers, the Gentiles, would tread the temple in the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. So, uh, again... Antichrist takes over the temple, desecrates it at the midpoint of the tribulation or at the three and a half year mark. All right, let's go back to verse three and four and see what the Lord has for us. The Bible says, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. All right, my friends, we learned that two witnesses will come that they will be empowered by God. The scripture says, these are my witnesses. I will give power to them. So they're empowered by the Lord. They are God's witnesses, empowered to prophesy for a very specific time here. And it's interesting, now the Bible talks about that three and a half year period in terms of days. We saw it in months, uh, just in the previous section, but now 1260 days is the equivalent of 3.5 years. Remember, friends, that all Bible prophecy is based on the old Jewish calendar, which was 360 days. So 360 times 3.5 brings you to 1260 days. These two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, which is the biblical dress code of mourners. So when someone is mourning and they're so stricken by that condition, often they would put on sackcloth. It's rough clothing, which would abrase them. It would be um, uh, very unpleasant, very uncomfortable. And so physically, they would wear an outfit that would match their internal grief. We see this in um, Jonah chapter 3, verse 8 to 10. We see it in the example of the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, Isaiah. We also see it in John the Baptist. And so this is a, uh, a real indicator. The way that these two witnesses dress is an indicator of their testimony 
of their grief, of their wailing over what they see in the world. They're calling men to repentance. They're calling out their sins and directing them to God. And the Bible says that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. To understand that, we need to look back at a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 11 to 14, where the Bible reads, Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. And so in Zechariah 4, we have a um, a forecast, if you will. There's a prophecy here about these two who would come in the last days. These two stand before the Lord, uh, empowered by the oil of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, to preach for three and a half years. Let me point out to you that Bible scholars and Bible students disagree on the identity of these two witnesses. And so it's important where the Bible speaks that we want to speak, where the Bible is silent, we want to be silent. But I think it's important for us to look at two predominant views without being dogmatic in any way. The two predominant views are that this is Enoch and Elijah. And the reason these two men are selected is because these are two men from the Old Testament who did not die natural deaths, but were taken up alive by the Lord. Some people believe that this is Enoch and Elijah, preserved in heaven alive right now for a time, for such a time to come as this, and then at the right time to come back to earth in those same bodies to be a witness, to die, and of course to be raised again. A second predominant view is Moses and Elijah. And in Matthew 17, there is a record of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And on the mount, his disciples looked and saw two men standing with him who were identified in that text as Moses and Elijah. And so if you take the view that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the whole earth, then here are two men that we know stood with him previously who came down from heaven. And the activities of their prophecy are also similar, if you think about it, to the earthly ministries of both Moses and Elijah. It was Moses who performed the plagues against Egypt in the Lord's power, Exodus chapter 7 through 12. And it was Elijah who was given power over the rain, James chapter 5. And of course, the ability to call down uh, heaven, if you think about the Mount Carmel experience and the prophets of Baal. So uh, while the identity of these two men is not stated clearly in Scripture, there are some prominent views. I wonder where you land. Why don't you leave that in the comments and we'll uh, be able to discuss a little further together. Look at verse 5 and verse 6. The Bible says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues with all plagues as often as they desire. So again, uh, this kind of fits the pattern. If you think about what Moses and Elijah did in their earthly ministries in Bible days, kind of fits with that, you know, uh, the plagues in Israel, uh, excuse me, the plagues in Egypt, and then of course, um, the power to shut up the heavens uh, and shut up the rain. So it's interesting that no one here is able to harm them in any way. And the Bible says that if anyone attempted to harm them, that they were granted the power of fire to come forth from their mouths to devour their enemies, and to kill their antagonists. I want to say to you, again, just a good reminder, unless the Bible gives us a reason to interpret this allegorically, we should take it in its plain, literal meaning. And there's nothing in this text that would lead us to believe that when John wrote this, that he was speaking an allegory, that their words would be 
you know, hot or flaming like, uh, like fire. It's not a metaphor. It's not a simile. And so we ought to take it literally. These men will have the ability, listen, to uh, defend themselves with fire that proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. It's a deadly fire. And then they also have power over nature. The Bible says they have power to stop the rain and to cause drought for the latter three and a half years of the tribulation. They can turn water into blood, and they can strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So the Lord gives them a tremendous amount of latitude in the exercise of these particular plagues. Now look at verse 7, and we'll go all the way through verse 10. We find that these two witnesses are eventually murdered. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now that's so interesting because... Anyone who tried to do it before this time would have been slain by the fire coming from their mouths. Their enemies could not approach them until now. Verse 8, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So the Bible says when the testimony of these two witnesses is complete, that the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit makes war with them, will overcome them and kill them. And these two witnesses will be terminated by the beast from the pit. This is probably, if you think of Revelation 9 and verse 11, this is probably Abaddon. The Bible says, And they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. And when we were in chapter 9, we discussed that some people believe that this is Satan, while others see this as a high-ranking angel over the legions of hell. Generally in Revelation, friends, Satan is referred to as the serpent or the dragon, which we're going to see in chapter 12, but uh, not necessarily as the beast. Someone will say, wait a minute, Pastor, I thought the beast in Revelation was the Antichrist. And that's true. To be honest with you, when you get over to Revelation chapter 13, there's a tremendous description of uh, the Antichrist as the beast who rises up out of the sea. But again, when we're reading the scripture, we need to be very careful to see every detail. This beast ascends out of the bottomless pit and creates war. So uh, it seems to me like this is something different than the Antichrist beast. If this is a different beast, again, I think it's uh, Abaddon from Revelation 9:11, but we'll not argue about that. When the two witnesses are killed, the Bible says that their bodies are left to lie in the street for a period of three and a half days. And the Bible makes it clear that this is the city of Jerusalem. If you look again at verse 8, it's clearly taking place in the same place where the Lord was crucified Although verse 8 calls this city Jerusalem, spiritually Sodom and Egypt. So that's an interesting description. It seems like by the time we get to uh, the last days, of course, we're in the tribulation period, that Jerusalem is steeped in immorality. Think about Sodom and its immoralities. And then also by that time that um, they're probably very much caught up in um, you know pagan religion, just as Egypt was as well. And resistant to the Lord, think about it, in spite of the plagues that have been poured out by these two witnesses for three and a half years. I mean, Moses poured out plagues for a period of time, and Pharaoh was resistant. The same kind of resistance seems to be in the hearts of those in Jerusalem in the last days. But it's clear that this is where the Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem is like, you know, front and center here. It is the epicenter of these events. Now, the Bible says that after the two witnesses were killed that people from the tribes, tongues, and nations would see their bodies lying in the street 
for three and a half days. They were forbidden burial, it seems, and put on display. Now, how in the world would the entire world see this? I mean, how could the whole world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, see their bodies lying in the streets? Well, the answer is pretty obvious through technology. We live in a day of instant information. Something could be happening across the world, and just minutes later, we find out about it here, and we get alerts on our smartphones or uh, on our internet news sites, or you know, television is interrupted with special reports through broadcasts. So, listen, the, the whole world will be able to see like never before. You say, what about those tribes and things way out in the middle of nowhere? Let me tell you, about 12 years ago, I was in rural Nicaragua doing missions work. And if you know anything about Nicaragua, 90% or so of the population is located around Managua, which is a fairly westernized civilization. I mean, you've got uh, shopping malls there, nice hotels, you've got paved streets. Uh, there's even like Burger King down there, okay? So uh, major stores, major chains have invested in in that community. But you get outside of Managua, where the rest of the 10% of the population live, and it is jungle and no infrastructure, you know, dirt roads, very crude, uh, crudely built roads, crudely built bridges, crudely built houses, huts, and those kind of things. And I remember being in Porta Cabezas and traveling down to a little uh, town on the Cocoa River called Waspam, Nicaragua. And it took us about five hours to go 40 miles on the back of a Toyota pickup truck. And what's so interesting is every so often we would come along a little makeshift village. Now, keep in mind, this is a dozen years ago. And you, you could look through the cracks in the uh, wood walls of these villages. That's how crude these little shacks were that people were living in out there. But what's so amazing, although you could look through the side of the walls of these crudely built cabins, every one of them had a satellite dish attached to the side and had electricity and had a television inside. It's so amazing how the technology has become accessible even in third world countries. And I'll tell you what, if you've done any missions in third world environments, you know that even in the third world, everybody has a cell phone. So listen, we're going to see this. It's going to be truly global. The Bible says in verse 10 that the inhabitants of the earth will rejoice and make merry over their deaths. There's going to be a global celebration here. People sending gifts to one another because they're celebrating that the torment of these witnesses of God is finally over. Uh, they tormented with their messages. They tormented with this, this gospel. They tormented by no one being able to turn them off. But also they tormented by the plagues that they brought, including the drought that apparently lasts for three and a half years. Now pick up in verse 11, we'll go all the way through verse 14, and we'll see this is the conclusion of the second woe. Remember, there are three woes. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, and they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now remember, uh, when we were talking about the woes, these last three trumpet judgments are also known as the three woes. If you just look back at chapter 9 and verse 12, the Bible says in that verse, after the fifth trumpet, uh, one woe is past. Behold, still more, still two more woes are coming after them. And of course, the sixth trumpet uh, from verse 13 to that chapter through verse 21 is the second woe. And now we're seeing the um, second woe wrapped up here. After three and a half days, the dead witnesses of God 
come back to life. Just think about that. Think about how their bodies would have reacted. The 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 blood uh, coagulating. The you know the the initial response to physical death. And there they were laying in the streets now, three and a half days. But the Lord performs a miracle. This is a deliberate resurrection wrought from God. And it's a part of their testimony. They are God's witnesses. And although they are killed by the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit, they are brought back to life. They stand back on their feet. So this is going to be, listen, a globally broadcast resurrection. You can imagine the television cameras from all your favorite news sources pointed at their dead bodies and the celebrations and interviews of people sending gifts. And all of a sudden, wait, we interrupt this program. Uh, There's something happening in Jerusalem. Uh, Let's go to our field reporter and see what's going on. And they film the two resurrected, the two witnesses being resurrected after being dead three and a half years. The Bible says great fear fell upon those who saw them. Now, the voice from heaven They heard a great voice, like the voice of the Father, certainly the Father's voice. And the voice says, come up here, all right? And so they ascend to heaven in the clouds, and their enemies saw them. That same hour, there was a great earthquake. One-tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Man, just massive. And then the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. This doesn't mean that they became Christ followers. I want to be clear about that. It just simply means that, listen, they gave glory to the God of heaven. And then verse 14, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And friends, that's what I, where I want to stop for the day. I had intended to go all the way through chapter 11, but I think we will save the seventh trumpet for next time and make that its own separate episode here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. And so we've seen the three woes now. Woe number one, chapter nine, verse one to 12. That was the fifth trumpet judgment. Chapter nine, uh, verse 13 uh, to 11, 14. That was the sixth trumpet and the interlude, second woe. And then woe number three, we're going to see that as we get into verse 15 and all the way through the end of chapter, what I think is chapter 19. So the third woe here is certainly coming, and we're going to see it now. These three woes, one, two, and three, here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. Hey, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things for me. I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, and if you if you have someone in your life, maybe a pastor, a small group leader, a Sunday school teacher, friend, family, co-worker, someone who might enjoy this kind of Bible teaching, would you share it? Would you share it with them? We're counting on you to help us get the word out about the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast. And I want to thank you for studying with us here in chapter 11. We'll pick up next time in verse 15 and go all the way through. Listen, the seventh trumpet, which is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. How exciting. Well, God bless you and keep you. We'll see you next time here on the Pre-Trib Prophecy Podcast.